The final speaker addressing breast cancer presentations from the 2007 ASCO meeting was Dr. Steve Jones, who began our conversation by commenting on an interesting approach to the identification of patients who might not benefit from tamoxifen. One of the issues that's come up in endocrine treatment, and it's kind of interesting because it's at the end of endocrine treatment with tamoxifen, as we've known it for a long time, is the question about metabolism of tamoxifen. And at least the retrospective analyses suggest that the patients who are intermediate or poor metabolizers, roughly 20% or so, really probably don't have as good an effect of tamoxifen. That's never been demonstrated prospectively. What Dr. Mortimer looked at was the frequency of hot flashes as a surrogate for whether someone was really metabolizing tamoxifen adequately. So in the women who appeared to be good metabolizers, maybe up to 80% were having hot flashes. My experience, that figure might be just a little bit high. And the patients who were poor metabolizers had lower rate. She reported on a study, the Women's Health Eating and Living Study, W-H-E-L, WHEEL study, And a large number of women were randomized to two healthy diets. And then they looked at the incidence of hot flashes and outcome. And she correlated outcome with hot flashes, which is sort of a reach in my opinion. But in fact, you know, the patients that had more hot flashes, i.e. perhaps had normal metabolism of tamoxifen, really had less recurrence rate. So there was a statistical correlation with that, but I think the main criticism is there's no measurement of 2D6, no measurement of really who was a good metabolizer or not of tamoxifen, and really no prospective data. It's an interesting hypothesis, but I think at the same time, the way the AIs have been coming into daily practice, I don't know how important this is going to be going forward. That's interesting. It kind of reminds me a little bit about rash with some of the TKIs, you know, for example, lung cancer with erlotinib, using sort of a toxicity marker to see whether or not the patient's really getting the drug delivered to the tumor. Exactly, except at least a rash is a little more objective. You either have a rash or you don't. Here it's subjective, hot flashes. And we've done some prospective studies of tamoxifen using Leprinzi's hot flash scale. And certainly a lot of women have hot flashes. Some are really low level. And it's an interesting hypothesis that that correlates with good metabolism. But I'm not sure it's proven yet. I'm not sure it's ready for prime time. I guess another paper that's sort of related to that is number 502, looking at the issue of would tamoxifen be superior to AIs if you could take into account pharmacogenomic testing. This is a modeling which seems to take into account the pharmacogenetics. So these are the Markov models. They're based on a lot of different assumptions. You don't necessarily know whether the assumptions are correct. But, you know, sort of assuming that 20 to 25 percent of the women don't properly metabolize tamoxifen and therefore are not getting the benefit, then if you kind of backed that data out or if you assumed that 100 percent of women with good metabolism of tamoxifen were in the trial, then the effect of tamoxifen would be better overall than it was in some of these trials. So I used the big 198. That's the randomized trial of letrozole versus tamoxifen. Did the modeling on that and concluded if they only had women in the trial that had no mutations and were good metabolizers of tamoxifen, tamoxifen could actually be superior. Again, my criticism would be this is a model. I sort of see that you can get these models to kind of turn out any way you want, kind of based on the assumptions. This is a very reputable group. They 
have a lot of experience in modeling, but I don't think anyone is going to go back in time and test this in a clinical trial. The clinical trial would have to be an AI against tamoxifen only in women who don't have any of the mutations, and I don't see anyone doing that. This is on serum. They're done all the time because the psychiatrists usually go after these types. So I think these tests are commercially available. And some of the doctors in U.S. oncology have adopted this on every single patient. Others are just kind of doing it. It certainly is interesting that it's really late in the natural history of the use of tamoxifen, too. I think it been a lot more interesting 20 years ago if we could have really picked the patients who might maximally benefit from tamoxifen. There was a sort of dueling model thing going on with the AIs and tamoxifen. You had Jack Cusick and the people in the UK with one model, and then you had Eric Weiner and Hal Burstein who were on this paper with the other model trying to argue for tamoxifen. So again, it seems like, at least in terms of our patterns of care data, we're seeing that there already has been a pretty strong shift towards using AIs up front in postmenopausal patients. One final thing about this pharmacogenomic or metabolism of tamoxifen, in a patient, for example, in the metastatic setting, would there make any sense to test the patient and then if they didn't metabolize it to give a higher dose of tamoxifen? Well, I don't think anyone knows the answer to that question. I personally have always felt that a little tamoxifen goes a long way because we had studies in the past that related incidence of depression to tamoxifen. It was really, for a long time, was the only paper on tamoxifen and depression. And what we did at that point in time was reduce the dose of tamoxifen, and very often the depression would get better without the use of antidepressants. I think that in terms of a pharmacologic effect, maybe a little tamoxifen is really all that you need. But I don't think we know the answer. At the moment, this issue has been raised. It's probably prudent to think about testing premenopausal women on tamoxifen. Or if you're doing, like I like to do, the switch strategy, starting with tamoxifen, it's probably prudent to make sure those women are good metabolizers of tamoxifen and not use any of the SSRIs that might be contraindicated. There was a paper that was presented looking at the issue of the time-dependent patterns of recurrence in early breast cancer, addressing this question that you were just talking about by Dignam et al. Can you talk about what that study is and how it relates to what you were just talking about in terms of the relapse history in ER-positive breast cancer? Well, I think one of the issues in the past was, and I actually discussed this with a number of people from the NSABP at different points in time. So if a woman has gone five years, what is her risk of recurrence going forward. And I think what's happened now is that's done on the basis of annual hazard rate. So it's a really pretty nice way to look at the risk per year, regardless of the treatment. And I think the NSABP mined their database, which is really very extensive, and really saw a very time-dependent pattern of recurrence. In ER negative, there's sort of a high early recurrence rate, and then the risk goes down considerably and continues to decline. So after five years in ER negative breast cancers, relatively low risk. In ER positive, they see kind of what everyone else has now seen when you look at the annual risk of recurrence, and that is there's sort of an early peak, but it doesn't go away. I mean, it really shows prolonged risk. I think the numbers that have been tossed around are 3 to 4% annual risk for node-positive patients, 1% to 2% for node-negative patients, and it really does support the value of prolonged or extended therapy, which a lot of us are doing now, particularly in the higher risk ER positive patients. Although back to your point in terms of what happens in the first couple years, it still does look even in these ER positive patients that you see a little bit of a peak there in the first couple years. 
I agree. There is a little bit. But I think if you take into account all the other prognostic factors, number of positive nodes, how strong the receptor positivity is, whether progesterone receptor is positive, and they didn't really look at that in this presentation, then I think you can really limit your risk of having a patient recur in the first two years. Of course, I guess the other thing, and this is going to be tested in trials, is maybe it'd be better just to use AIs for 10 years. Yeah, I think we are looking at long-term treatment, probably 10 years. And, you know, I have patients in my practice these days because I have long-term patients who are now 11 years, 12 years. They've had five, six, seven years of tamoxifen. They've been on an aromatase inhibitor. But they had extremely high risk, lots of positive nodes. And I'm very reluctant to stop treatment on those patients. There's no data. There's absence of data. But those patients remain high risk. And this NSABP analysis just supports the fact that they still are ongoing risk of late recurrence. Now, another issue related to hormone therapy that came out again at this meeting, an abstract 521, came out of the big study. There have been a number of reports now out of all the AI trials looking at the question of cardiovascular adverse events. And in this situation, they were looking at letrozole versus tamoxifen and updated their data. Can you talk about what they presented? Yeah, I think this issue has been raised with trials. For example, I'm very involved in the intergroup exomestane study. So a couple of years ago, it was raised as an issue. But we've just now had a detailed publication in the Lancet 2007 five-year results where really statistically there's no increased cardiovascular risk compared to tamoxifen. So I think with exomestane, that issue is settled. When you look at the actual number of events, there can be small differences. I mean, I've gone back and looked at the age trial, and there were slightly more heart attacks numerically in Arimidex rather than Tamoxifen, but not statistically significant. I think what they've done in this trial, the big 198, which is letrozole versus Tamoxifen, is really update this to 30 months of follow-up. When you look at grade 3 to 5 cardiac events. There were more cardiac events in letrozole. It was 96 versus 57 with tamoxifen, and that was quite significant. If you look at ischemic heart disease, it was 45 versus 29. Again, numerically more, but not significant. If you look at stroke, it was identical, 47 and 47. And in all these trials, if you look at thromboembolic events, it was about half of what it was with tamoxifen. So it's kind of an interesting conclusion. They didn't conclude that there were more cardiac events with letrozole, but what they concluded was the number of events were rare, considering the thousands of patients. Any increased risk was offset by the benefit. Well, I think that's a value judgment. But at least the data is there. You can look at it and make the judgment for yourself. And I think they are correct. When you're talking about these trials with thousands and thousands of women, we're really looking at pretty small numbers of cases. You're looking at an excess of around 40 N of 4,000. Exactly. Another paper that came out of the big study, and again, this has been sort of batted around the last couple of years, has been this issue of ERPR and HER2 and what that means in terms of the AIs versus tamoxifen. Can you talk about this data set? Yeah, this was a further update of the effort in the Big 198 trial to go back and get the blocks and do central laboratory assessment of receptors and HER2 status. 
So in the ATAC trial, where a lot was made out of ER subtypes, that was all done on the basis of whatever was recorded on case report forms. And recently, Mitch Dowsett and his colleagues have gotten some blocks in the ATAC study and done a study called the Trans-ATAC that was reported at San Antonio 2006. And that seemed to show not so much of a difference. Now, this is in the big 198. This is a fairly large number of blocks done in one central laboratory assessing ER. PR and HER2. And what they've shown was that the patients that have lower or absent progesterone receptor do have a worse prognosis. Those with HER2 positive have a worse prognosis. We've pretty much known that before. And in all these groups, letrozole was superior to tamoxifen. What they didn't see was the sort of marked difference, ERPR positive versus ER positive PR negative. There was a little trend, not significant. So basically, I think the take-home message here is that progesterone receptor is a factor, but in fact, you can't make clinical decision making about whether somebody's ERPR positive versus ER positive PR negative. And I guess her too, same thing. Yeah, the HER2 story is kind of interesting because in both the trans-ATAC study and in the big 198, there wasn't any dramatic advantage of letrozole in the HER2 positive population. You know, that's been heavily touted previously, but it's really not much different than in the HER2 negative versus the HER2 positive. And that's been seen in the trans-ATAC also. In fact, in the HER2 positive, there seemed to be less effect of the AI than there was in HER2 negative. You should feel guilty or feel like you're a bad doctor if you've given tamoxifen to a woman that's HER2 positive. I mean, these patients in general have lower levels of hormone receptors, probably don't respond as well, but there's no compelling evidence from this analysis in the trans-ATAC analysis that the AI is absolutely the treatment of choice in the HER2 positive patients. Next paper I want to ask you about is Abstract 539, looking at the issue of disease-free survival as a surrogate endpoint for overall survival. There's been a lot of discussion of this in colon cancer in the last couple of years and in a lot of tumors. This was a meta-analysis of 10 randomized trials. Can you talk about what they reported? Yeah, this was a meta-analysis, and I think I've been involved in some meetings. There's a group of investigators who've gotten together several times and are planning a true meta-analysis of all the aromatase inhibitor data. Tilly's done a literature survey and kind of taken the main trials and done a meta-analysis. And they make the comment that overall disease-free survival was correlated with overall survival, which is what we all kind of think, at least from the chemotherapy trials. But almost all of this effect so far has really been in the early switch trials, you know, two to three years of tamoxifen going on to an AI. And I think in the actual trials, and again, I'm going to go back to actual trial data rather than some meta-analysis, there's no overall survival difference yet with Arimidex or with Letrozole in the upfront trials compared to a tamoxifen, whereas there is some difference in the switch trials. So I think what they're saying is that eventually we may see this. Maybe it's a predictor. And again, they kind of looked at the issue, and this isn't surprising, of whether three-year disease-free survival would predict outcome. And I think it's going to be very hard hard to make that correlation in breast cancer. Might work in colon cancer, but breast cancer is a little tougher. This issue of the switch trial showing survival advantage has been heavily debated, and I guess the key point that's been brought up is that these patients are not considered from day one 
that the randomization in the switch trials occurs a couple years later where you have a selected population. Therefore, you know, you can't really make that kind of a statement. What do you think about that? Well, that's one of the arguments that's made. But the German trial really followed the patients with a little less than a 1,000 patients, followed them from the beginning. And in fact, there's a survival advantage for the patients who were switched two years to anastrozole. I think IES, that's true. We didn't follow patients from the beginning. The Austrian trial, which is pretty reasonably powered, just isn't mature enough yet to potentially see that difference. I guess the flip side of the coin, we've been talking about these models and the dueling models, and the other dueler, as I mentioned, has been Jack Cusick. He and his group presented another paper looking at this same issue. Can you talk about that? That was Abstract 541. Yeah, and I think you've put it well, dueling models. So the first model that they were involved with was really supporting the results of the ATAC study. And the argument was that upfront would be better. This is just another extension of that, really talking about 10 years of treatment. In their model, 10 years of treatment would always beat switch strategy. But again, I think that remains to be seen in actual clinical trial data. So it's interesting. We could put the two groups of modelers in a room, lock them in the room, and whoever comes out the winner, we could declare victory. I guess the other question would be relevant, again, as we've heard this debated back and forth, is whether or not the complication, particularly the serious complication issues of the AIs would be more favorable compared to tamoxifen, particularly in terms of thrombosis, endometrial cancer, even if the efficacy were similar or the same. What are your thoughts on that? You know, now, I guess, more than five years since the ATAC trial first presented. Yeah, I think that if you're thinking about five years of tamoxifen and five years of AI starting today, the more serious complications such as endometrial cancer, all the gynecologic problems are an issue. If, in fact, you give a couple years of tamoxifen and then switch, our German colleagues in the team trial had a poster at ASCO. I think one of the posters is poster 572 with Dirk Kiebeck that really showed that although you get a lot of endometrial stimulation with tamoxifen for the first couple years, years, you really get virtually none with exemestane. And this is really a parallel to the intergroup exemestane trial, where after a couple of years of tamoxifen, when tamoxifen was taken away, all the endometrial effects are fairly rapidly reversed. And none of us really think the two years of tamoxifen is going to give you endometrial cancer. So I think relatively short term is safe again. You do have endometrial thickening. I think Dirk Kiebeck showed that. It builds up quite a bit with tamoxifen, but it is reversible when you take the drug away. Let's talk a little bit about another issue, specifically bone as it relates to the AIs. I'd like you to comment on abstract 553 that looked at oral abandonate and anastrozole-induced bone loss. Can you talk about that? That's the Aribin study? In this abstract 553, the British investigators took a group of women treated with anastrozole and really looked to see really two or three things. They were looking to see whether oral ibandronate would, in fact, improve bone health or prevent osteopenia, osteoporosis. If you have normal bone density, and clearly that worked, it actually got a positive benefit. And then they also took patients who had osteopenia or osteoporosis and gave them ibandronate. And there was pretty rapid increase in 
in bone mass in those groups of women. Now, this is a very well-tolerated oral drug, doesn't have the issues of sort of the IV drug. I don't know if there's enough experience to know if you're going to get osteonecrosis of the jaw. I mean, it has been attributed to the oral bisphosphonates, although it's obviously much, much less common than with the intravenous bisphosphonates. And this is a relatively small study. The senior author, Robert Coleman, has done the bone health work in ATAC studies, did the bone health study in the intergroup exomethane study, and I've been in several meetings with him. He's a very thoughtful, knowledgeable individual about bone health. So this, I think, would potentially, it's not a randomized trial, but does represent another approach to trying to protect bone health in women on aromatase inhibitors. I guess the other thing that was interesting to me was this agent was given orally once a month. Yeah, I think that's the standard dosing in this country. You know, the brand name is Boniva, once a month dosing, a lot of television advertising for it. Certainly a well-tolerated drug. And I think this happens to be the oral bisphosphonate in this group of women who are getting aromatase inhibitors. As you know, and you've discussed several many times in your program, the ZFAST and the ZOFAST trials using intravenous zoledronic acid also are effective, but those are not approved indications in this country. And certainly, I think this would be interesting for oncologists to contemplate if they had a patient who was at risk to consider giving oral ibandronate. It is available. They wouldn't have to go through the issues of trying to get intravenous zoledronic acid approved for their patients. Now, another paper that was interesting in terms of the issue of bone was abstract 560 from the LEAP study comparing the three AIs. Can you talk about that? Yeah, this is a trial of different aspects has been reported. This is in healthy volunteers, so these are not cancer patients, and they've been randomized between the three aromatase inhibitors. What they've shown, I think, was not too much of a surprise, and they looked at body mass index, and the women who had increased body mass index, i.e. more fat, actually had higher estradiol levels, and we know that that's a source of producing estrogen for some women. And there appeared to be a more effective aromatase inhibitors in those women who had high body mass index with more estrogen that you were probably cutting that down and would potentially put them at increased fracture risk. This is really a relatively short-term study. It didn't look at fractures. It just sort of looks at estradiol, suppression of estradiol, and correlating with body mass index. So it's interesting, but I don't think this is going to change clinical practice. Another paper I wanted to ask you about was 562 that looked at risk factors for local and distant breast cancer recurrence during adjuvant endocrine therapy. Can you talk about that paper? I think the ATAC study with 9,000 women in really is a huge database of information. And I think at virtually every meeting, we see some new aspect of this, which is being looked at. And here, they really looked at the risk factors for recurrence in this adjuvant hormonal trial. I don't think there were any surprises here. There was a higher risk of recurrence if you had a worse differentiated cancer, or if you had larger cancer, or you had more lymph node involvement. That's pretty much the same thing as we've seen in other studies. But it is a tremendous resource to be able to use this database from the ATAC study. It looks like all the traditional factors, huh? I think it's all the traditional things that we normally think about, but it was in the ATAC study, so the data is collected prospectively, and it really kind of confirms what we've known before. Let's talk a little bit about abstract number 1024, looking at changes in estrogen receptor, progesterone receptor, and HER2 status with time, discordance rate between primary metastatic disease and pathology. There's been a lot of discussion about this. Can you talk about this particular data set? 
Yeah, I think this is a more modern sampling of what happens to breast cancers over time. There really was a lot of literature on these particular topics a number of years ago. Mark Lippman had done lots of studies on this. And these were really archival samples where they had the primary and metastatic breast cancer tissue and back and looked at these. At least if you look at estrogen receptor, there's always some smattering of cases that go from ER positive to ER negative, maybe about 10%. Some of them were said to be ER negative that become ER positive, maybe 8 to 10%. I always kind of doubt that. I always wonder whether or not that's really the testing issue, how good the techniques are for deciding estrogen receptor. Its sample size is pretty small, 62 patients that they looked at. There was another group, 59 patients, slightly fewer, where they looked at progesterone receptor, and their loss of progesterone receptor was more common, occurring close to 40%. And they didn't have anybody that went progesterone receptor negative to positive. And the other thing, which I think was fairly reassuring, is that, in fact, in the HER2 status in 70 cases, the concordance was about 95%. So you didn't really suddenly pick up HER2 later on or lose HER2. It was really pretty consistent. You know, I'm not one of those breast oncologists that biopsies a lot of patients to get tissue. And I see that done, and I think sometimes that kind of leads to potential mistakes in management. I'll just give you an example. I had a patient recently in my practice, and it wasn't that someone made an effort to do it, but she had a local recurrence 13 years later. The original cancer was ER positive. On testing of this local skin recurrence 13 years out, it was said to be ER negative. I think the importance is that is a very late recurrence. Clinically, that is ER-positive breast cancer, regardless of what the testing says. And my approach to her is to use hormonal therapy as systemic therapy, not just react to somebody saying this is ER-negative and therefore she needs chemotherapy. The biology is that of a very late, slow recurrence. So that was a case where the surgeon didn't know what this was, removed it, it was tested. Most of the time, I don't try to get tissue to find out what the current status is. And I think this paper is really kind of reassuring in that regard. Most of the time, you can use the ER and HER2 status from the original tumor to make the proper treatment decisions. Now, when you say you don't get tissue, obviously you're talking about metastatic disease. And I guess the other side of that, in addition to the markers, is the question of, you know, for sure seeing it under the microscope because of the graveness of the situation and wanting to be 100% absolutely sure what you're dealing with. What are your thoughts about that kind of thinking? I say I don't get tissue, but there are obvious clinical situations in which you are going to tissue, there's a solitary lesion, you're not sure what it is. I'm not going to subject somebody to chemotherapy, hormonal therapy, radiation therapy for life if, in fact, it's not breast cancer, and I've had a few of those situations. But if it comes back, got bone pain, you've got multiple lesions on the skeleton, you've got a couple pulmonary nodules, the tumor marker's elevated, that's the situation where I normally don't go get tissue. Now, I think this is probably going to change. It's going to change because of the increasing use of these targeted agents where you're going to try to go in and get tissue and find out what particular target you're going to be looking at as you try to decide treatment. So I think getting tissue will probably become more important going forward. But I think the majority of patients I see in my practice with recurrence, it's really clinically very clear it's a recurrence of cancer, not anything else. Let's talk a little bit about Bob Carlson's paper 1030, looking at combination of gaserolin and anastrozole in premenopausal hormone receptor positive metastatic disease. 
Yeah, I think Bob Carlson is the group of older breast oncologists who still use a lot of hormonal therapy in their practices, very interested in it. And in fact, Bob has been interested in this topic of using an aromatase inhibitor in premenopausal women. To do that, you really have to render them postmenopausal, and you can do that with surgery. You can do it with gazerolin, which is what he did in this phase two study. So he had 35 premenopausal women, metastatic breast cancer, really was measuring estradiol suppression, gave gazerolin to suppress estrogen production, and then gave anastrozole, and had about a 70% clinical benefit rate, which is really quite good. We have kind of a similar situation ongoing in the adjuvant arena. There's the Austrian trial 6 that's using gazerolin for everybody and looking at anastrozole or tamoxifen in the adjuvant setting. And then there's also the tech study and the soft trial, which are looking at the issue of ovarian suppression plus either tamoxifen or exemestane. But I think in the metastatic setting, this really suggests a very reasonable treatment to do. A little corollary I'd bring up on this, sort of what I found, I think gazerolin isn't necessarily the easiest drug for patients to receive. It's kind of a subcutaneous injection. I frequently end up using this as a bridge myself. The patients will be on it for a few months, but then the patients kind of decide they'd rather have an oophorectomy than continue getting the shots. But I think what Bob Carlson shown it's a very active treatment. And of course, he, like most of this research, used Q-month LHRH agonists as opposed to Q3 months. How do you approach the interval, the duration issue? Well, as far as I know, gazerolin or Zolodex on a monthly basis is the only drug approved for treating premenopausal women. So the use of luprolide or three-month dosing is not an approved treatment. There have been some issues whether or not you get full suppression for three months. So I think if I'm going to do it, I use monthly gazerolin dosing for the absolute certainty that I'm getting as much ovarian suppression as I can while I'm giving an aromatase inhibitor. Would you be surprised if I told you that our Patterns of Care study shows that 40% of oncologists in the United States in practice are using Q3 month routinely in breast cancer, and about a quarter of the 51 investigators that we surveyed also use Q3 months in breast cancer? No, I wouldn't be surprised at all. Every time someone asks me this question, I kind of point out what's approved and what isn't approved. I actually had a situation in my practice where I was using one of these drugs, and it took a while to find out that our practice wasn't getting reimbursed for it. So in this day and age, I think you do have drugs that do have an approved indication, and that's gazerolin on a monthly basis. So a lot of them may well be covered. It may not be a problem, but I do point out that they should at least find out whether the practice is getting reimbursed for the drug. We actually submitted an abstract to San Antonio with that data as well as some other things that we saw that we considered potentially questionable clinical practices. Do you agree with that or do you think that Q3 months is a reasonable alternative? I think in the sort of absence of data, I think it's reasonable treatment. It gives you sort of prolonged ovarian suppression. But, you know, I have heard from a few experts in the area that there may be breakthrough where you no longer really get full ovarian suppression for the full three months. But I certainly recognize this being done commonly in practice. Another endocrine paper I wanted to ask you about was presented by John Robertson looking at the issue that there's been quite a bit of discussion about over the last few years, which is fulvestrant and the question of fulvestrant and HER2-positive breast cancer. I think the whole issue of hormone therapy in the HER2-positive tumor has been much more on the table ever since the tandem data looking at trastuzumab and anastrozole was presented last fall. Can you talk a little bit about John's paper? 
Yeah, Professor Robertson is a very interesting gentleman. He's a breast surgeon. He's been extremely interested in neoadjuvant treatment and has probably been the one investigator who has hung in there with full Vestrant over the years. I think at San Antonio, my recollection was there might have been one abstract on full Vestrant, and it was his. There were sort of two of them here, but again, his is one of them. He's presented previously a little bit of preliminary data, but this time he has a pretty reasonable sample size, seven. 70 patients, metastatic breast cancer, ER positive, HER2 positive. If you kind of look at all HER2 positive patients, about half are ER positive. So this is maybe 10% of all breast cancer. And yet he came up with a 70 patient sample size. He used standard dosing of full Vestrand. And as we've discussed on your programs before, that's an issue. But this is once a month dosing and had a 40% clinical benefit rate, which is highly respectable in this group of women using full Vestrand. Restaurant, ER positive, HER2 positive. So this is the largest sample to date. They didn't use a loading dose, and yet it was an effective hormonal treatment. Does this affect in any way the way you approach patients in a non-protocol setting? Again, the tandem data with an AI looked a little bit less than encouraging when the anastrozole alone arm. Would you be more likely to consider fulvestrin in a patient like that? Well, that's a good question. I have actually used an AI and trastuzumab in patients with metastatic disease, and I've had some pretty good results. And as I kind of look at the tandem data, as you said, I think you're correct, it was fairly disappointing. The time to tumor progression was fairly short for the AI alone. It was double when you added trastuzumab, but it still wasn't impressive. And yet for the patients getting the AI and trastuzumab, about 20% had long-term remissions. And I think if you pick the patient that has strongly ERPR positive disease, slowly progressive on hormonal treatment, that might be the potential candidate to try a hormonal agent plus trastuzumab. And this paper offers a little more support for another hormonal agent, full Vestrant, rather than just the use of the AI. So I think that would be an option as well if you had the very carefully selected patients. Where do you see fulvestrin heading? We've been wondering, you know, for years, are we ever going to look at it in the adjuvant setting? The data came out comparing it with tamoxifen that sort of turned a lot of people off. And then more recently, people have talked about, well, could we add fulvestrin to an AI? Where do you think things are heading in terms of the question of whether fulvestrin will ever be used in the adjuvant setting? There are a number of important clinical trials with fulvestrant that have not been reported. As you've covered on your programs in the past, the EFFECT trial really compared exemestane to fulvestrant, and that was the first study of fulvestrant that used a loading dose schedule. But the outcome was exactly the same, and it was really third-line hormonal therapy. What remains yet are a couple trials. There is a trial of double-dose fulvestrant versus the standard dose, and I think that's the one that's going to settle the issue once and for all whether the dosing is correct. I think once the dosing's there, there would be pretty strong interest in looking at the adjuvant setting, but so far we haven't had the data to really pursue that. And the idea of fulvestrand in combination remains unknown also. Now, Abstract 1085 looked at the issue of the lipid profile, endometrial effects, and coagulation impact of fulvestrin. You know, again, maybe with the thought that it might eventually be looked at in the adjuvant setting. What did they see there? 
Dr. Robertson is not alone. There is another investigator looking at full Vestrant this year at ASCO. This was an interesting aspect because I don't think it was really looked at as whether there might be some lipid effects. And there was some mild or modest lowering of lipids with the use of full Vestrant. It was only 28 patients, fairly small numbers. Total cholesterol went down, really no effect on triglycerides. But again, I think the direction's in the right direction and sort of doesn't give off any signal that we should not think about this in the adjuvant setting. So I wanted to cover with you the major endocrine papers. I don't know that there was any earth shaker type papers this year, but just taking a step back, having just got back from ASCO and breast cancer in general, you know, anything that sort of jumped out at you, maybe something that wasn't in such a major session or the major sessions from a practical perspective in terms of the oncologist and practice you want to comment on? Well, if you kind of look back two years ago when we had all the trastuzumab papers, that's probably the kind of meeting that we may never have again. Certainly, that's the one I can remember that just stands out. And there wasn't anything of that sort at this year's ASCO. I think what you're getting is little pieces of information that fill in gaps here and there in your knowledge. We had two adjuvant studies. One was Joe Sperano updated 1199, and that's the trial of everybody getting AC up front with with a taxane either every three weeks or on a weekly schedule. And I think with a little more follow-up now, again, the two better treatments were docetaxel every three weeks, but a lot more toxicity, or weekly paclitaxel, which really came out a little bit ahead. And then U.S. Oncology presented its second adjuvant study. We've talked on these programs before. Our first adjuvant study is our AC versus TC trial. And from your recent interviews, that appears to have captured your imagination. Well, actually, we're also seeing it's actually being used, which I guess you would find gratifying since it's your paper. But we are definitely seeing more, not only researchers, but also docs in practice utilizing TC. We have submitted now seven-year data, which will be the final analysis, the seven-year data to San Antonio for 2007. So everyone should stay tuned on that. But I think the second adjuvant study we did in U.S. Oncology was presented by David Lesh from Indianapolis. And this was a trial that we started right after we completed ACTC. So we didn't have any lead at that time. We didn't build on that trial. And this was a trial where there was a lot of interest in paclitaxel. So we actually gave adromycin paclitaxel every three weeks, followed by 12 weekly doses of paclitaxel. So this is an arm that took out all the cyclophosphamide from the treatment. And then we compared it to standard AC every three weeks, followed by paclitaxel every three weeks. And I think we have a couple studies now showing that AC taxol every three weeks, not growth factors, not dose dense, is really probably not optimal treatment. But that was the control arm when this trial began in 2000. And here it is in 2000, five-year results are being reported. It was kind of interesting and a little bit hard for me to fathom. I'm still thinking about it. But in this trial, at three years, we had a significant improvement in disease-free survival and overall survival. At five years, disease-free survival curves came together, no longer significant. But overall survival was still a significant difference. So it's a little hard to kind of compute not having a significant difference in disease-free survival, but having markedly fewer breast cancer deaths and an improvement in overall survival. But that was at a cost of more neurotoxicity. I think the conclusions was 
it will be an option for treatment, but I actually don't think it's going to change practice very much. But again, at the end of it, we're talking about weekly paclitaxel as part of the novel regimen. So if anything, it's a little bit better. And I think coupled with 1199 is an argument that AC followed by weekly paclitaxel would be a reasonable treatment.